I just couldn't help it. <laughs> oh, I, 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 every time, every time I hear that, I break out in a sweat. I, I just couldn't help it. Uh, this is, uh, <laughs> this, this is a. Have you ever been to a, co a convention, a real political convention? I, I once attended a convention. And let me tell you, there is nothing... I don't know whether or not many of you realize, because most people are basically afraid to get up before other people. You, know, I, you constantly get this, uh, this written in letters. and so, I, I just can't get up in front of people, Mr. Shepard. I just don't. I don't know. You know, this, this routine. Well, let me tell you this, that there are very few things, in fact, I don't know of anything, that is as quite as intoxicating. I guess that's about almost the only word you can use. It even goes beyond intoxication. Intoxication of some kind or another is, is just as it flows through your brain, your brain gets on fire. Your innards are in a, in a fantastic turmoil. I don't know of any feeling of intoxication that even remotely approaches the feeling of standing before a group of thousands of people. It's not a group, it's a crowd, of course, when it gets to be in that category, but let's say a thousand people with a microphone and you are, you are having a good day, you are hot, and they are listening to every word you are saying and everything that you utter is important. And there's a microphone in front of you, and every time you say something, you can hear the sound echoing back to you. And there is this intense feeling of power. And you know, once you have tasted this, it is impossible to ever go back again, really. Uh, that we're, we're always talking about what, what is the cause of war? What is the cause of this drive to become a Hitler? What, is, what makes a man suddenly become a Castro? What makes a man suddenly become a... Oh, a Mussolini or a, or whatever it is that, that rises to become a tyrant over other men. No one can explain it really except to say that anyone who has ever tasted the little bit of it, that is, controlling a vast crowd, a vast crowd, a, a faceless crowd, anyone who has ever had that experience will know. There's just never any any question of what it is that makes a Hitler, what it is that makes a... There is a, there's something that catches on fire in your brain. And I just couldn't help but play this record, which is part of an LP that I cut about a year or so ago. And this particular LP has to do with the, with the whole phenomenon of the man standing before a gigantic crowd. It doesn't refer specifically, you know, to crowds. Uh, the, the idea also is that the crowd itself, after it becomes two, after it, it, in a sense, ignites, when the crowd ignites, when the brain begins to burn, when this little man is standing in the, in the Klieg lights and his microphone is picking up the echoes and the feedback, when the crowd ignites, it too, you see, knows a moment of exaltation that it hardly ever knows singly. It's a fascinating thing that, that, that crowds, almost any crowd, you, you, under the proper circumstances, of course, people behave pretty much the same. And, uh, getting, getting the crowd into a proper pitch, uh, a proper sense of that, that flame, that brush fire that burns through the hearts and the souls of men, once someone has stood up before them with a flag and says, Forward, men, forward! They, uh, 
once once this happens, uh, almost any crowd will do almost anything. That's something that you got to remember. Any of you who saw any pictures of what went on down at Newport here last week are aware of that. Any of you who saw crowds, do you remember the pictures taken down in Cuba about a year and a half ago when all those people were sitting in the sports palace and uh, this this uh, this demagogue or whoever it was who was speaking, it wasn't necessarily Castro, but somebody would get up and would feed the crowd more, and he'd and then the crowd would go, burn him, kill him, and and uh, rising, rising to a great height. Well, uh, I remember seeing uh, uh, newsreels of Hitler when uh, Hitler was addressing, say, a party congress or something of this nature. They had the torches burning, and they had the great eagles rising above the podium. And Hitler, this tiny figure. Incidentally, the tinier the figure, the more imposing it becomes. This is fascinating. Most people think of a big man. No, it's, it's almost always little men who lead crowds, because little men in, lime, in the limelight are more dramatic than big men. Uh, there, there's a, there is a, and, and how do we explain this? Well, you have to go into almost a whole theory of aesthetics to explain why it is. Uh, the, the light looks so big and the man looks so small, and because he looks so small, his ideas become even more powerful. That I don't think we would follow a man 45 feet tall. <laughs> the dramatics would just be gone. And I, when I recorded this thing, I, I was thinking of all the crowds I had ever seen and all the spellbinders I had ever been involved with. Uh, the, and it goes into all different areas, for example, in the, in the religious area. Uh, the, the crowds will, will do things in the name of religion. They will do things in the name of, just in the name of excitement that they would not normally do. I remember one day I'm standing here in a, in a crowd uh, down on 72nd Street or 71st, something like that, over on, uh, over on uh, 5th Avenue, right next to the park. It was a beautiful day and the sun was coming down and there was a parade coming along. And I'm in the middle of the crowd. And suddenly... Uh, I began to sense there was something funny going on, and, and I could see a few policemen around riding horses and mounted police, and there was a little, little thing going on in the air. And the next thing I knew, there were a group of Cubans marching past, and I was in a crowd of Cubans and Americans and people, and there was a sort of a big, fat blonde standing in the middle of the crowd next to me, and she was complaining because she couldn't get across the street. And next to her was her poodle, who was also complaining because he couldn't get across the street. And next to the poodle was her girlfriend, who looked exactly like the poodle, and she was complaining because she couldn't get across the street. And, and one of them said, one of them said, you know, I've stood, one time I stood between 61st and 65th Street. Took me over an hour in a cab to get that distance. This traffic is getting terrible. And of course, there was a parade going by, and we were in the middle of, we were in the middle of a gigantic human event. And within 30 seconds, people started to throw eggs. Believe it or not, have you ever been in a parade where they started to throw eggs? And then suddenly, eggs came out of people's pockets. And eggs are going back and forth, and I'm in the middle of it. And a cop comes galloping over on a horse. And directly in front of me, there's this little Cuban. This little Cuban is looking at the crowd. And he's wearing a green shirt, and he's getting more and more excited, and he's sweating. And he starts to throw pieces of paper out. Of it. And the next thing I know, he's hollering, Yankee, go home! Yankee, go home, Yankee! And there I'm a Yankee, see? And I turn to him, and I say, me, Yankee, me home. He says, Yankee, go home, go home, Yankee! And <laughs> within 30 seconds, I began to believe he had a point. I don't know why. I began to believe, yes, maybe it is time that I, I, I pick up my... My, uh, my care packages and go home. And here I was on Fifth Avenue and home. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> it's getting to the point where there's no place for a Yankee to go. <laughs> 
And, and it, was, it was all part of that gigantic crowd. Speaking of the gigantic crowd philosophy, this is WOR, AM and FM, New York. And uh, we'll be here until 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, I don't know, you know, just keep fighting. Today, taste is what smokers want most in a cigarette. Winston tastes good like a cigarette should because Winston has an important difference. The big difference is filter blend, and only Winston has it. Filter blend is up front in Winston, up front where it really counts. Exclusive filter blend. Rich, golden tobaccos, specially selected, specially processed for filter smoking. Designed to give you all the true tobacco taste you light up to enjoy. Yes, like man, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it, it is something that, uh, I don't know, you just can't explain. I, As a person who has done a great deal of public performing... Uh, public speaking, I, I can tell you this, that that the most exciting of all, you don't get the sense of it in radio. Radio is a very interesting and, and intricate, very intricate medium. And it's a medium, sadly enough, you know, I, someday I'm going to talk about this. In fact, I might do that this, I might do that even now, right, right, <laughs> right this very minute. But uh, the whole idea of radio performance and radio acting uh, to transmit uh, an essential, ethereal, almost uh, tenuous idea by radio uh, is almost a completely lost art. That back in the 19th, it's sad that a whole a whole art form grew to fruition, and then suddenly disappeared. It would be as if somebody had invented painting, and great painters had flourished for oh maybe 20 years, and then everybody forgot about painting because everyone discovered ceramics. Or they discovered sculpture, and they, they, they just completely ignored painting for that day on. Because radio can do things that television and that movies and that the stage can never do. It plays with the imagination in a mind that I think no other medium can ever even approach. Uh, and yet, the, the whole idea of radio acting. You know, some great radio actors who in their field were as fine as, and in many cases even better, than anybody performing on Broadway, anybody performing... Uh, in the Shakespearean repertory today, uh, some great actors rose to become really fine artists in the field of radio back in the 1930s and early 40s. And the whole the whole canvas is gone now. The whole thing is gone. And it's, it's really a shame because uh, this was a fine medium and is as far as a medium, it's like it's as though there's a big sleeping giant out there, a huge sleeping giant that's lying out there, that one time people hunted, that one time excited people, and has now long since somehow been forgotten by the people, and it's lying out in the jungle there, just just, just completely untouched. It's as though there's a whole new mind uh, land. Let's say a, a universe of the, of the psyche is lying out there untouched and will be untapped. And it's interesting how it's ignored by even the most important types of people. That, uh, that uh, as far as radio is concerned, it hardly matters what you say on radio, uh, even though there are thousands of people listening to radio, millions. 
every day. It hardly matters what is said on radio because the official journals don't really take cognizance of it. Uh, they, they, they never do. Uh, somebody puts on a little bitty off-Broadway show with 25 people in the, in the audience and four people in the cast. They will get columns of, of print and type in the New York Times on the Sunday page, too, you see. Uh, but uh, radio shows go on and on. Many of them, uh, many of them are, are very, very worthwhile. But that's that's beside the point. What I was trying to say here was that perhaps the sense of power that uh, is evident in working before a live audience, uh, with a man before a live audience, the sense of power and the the kind of two-way communication. This is not. Obviously, not often felt in radio. I know that I don't often feel it in, ra- in, the, in the sense that there is a great crowd out there. It's just, just not there for me. When I work, I'm working in a, in a vacuum, in a, in a closed, sealed room. And I can tell you this, that uh, as a person who has done a great deal of, of stage work of one kind or another, I can say that the sense of power that a person knows performing on the stage is a sublime thing. It's the thing that draws people into the theater. And don't don't let them give you this jazz about I'm here because of the art. Uh, I'm always I'm always amused when I hear an actor being interviewed, and he's talking about uh, you know the, the artistic uh, all the all the uh, sure there are uh, there certainly there there is a there is a percentage of that involved too, but a very small percentage. Let me say this, that the, that the sense of power that a man feels when he walks before a camera or when he walks out of the wings and onto the stage, the sense of the power that he has over all the people watching, the audience, is by far and away the greatest thing that draws him to what he does. And the personal sense of power, I would like to know how many actors, for example, would act, really work, and would really and genuinely act if there was a law passed that there would be no, no credit lines given. Nobody's name would ever be mentioned. <laughs> it would change a lot of attitudes, I can tell you, towards acting overnight. And it would also change a lot of people in the audience's attitudes towards the theater. They would be furious if they didn't know the names of the people. Uh, for some, some reason or other, knowing their names makes them more important, even, even, even in the case of the bad actor. And, you know, when you you get into this business of crowd psychology and the great sense of fantastic power you feel, you're going to hear this in all the conventions. That is the reason why I played this record today. I was listening to it the other night, and I thought, yeah, you know, uh, I can remember the the first time that I attended a convention, uh, which was not, uh, let's see, it was 1952 was the first convention I ever saw. 52? Yeah, uh, and I, I went into this convention hall, and almost always the convention halls are seem hot, even if they're not hot. You know, they have 5,000 air conditioners all going, but they're hot. They're, the reason they are heated is, or, or the sense of being heated, they're not really heated. You can look at the thermometer, and it says 74, but you, you're walking around, and you feel like it's 110 in there. The reason, of course, is the electric tension in a way, this this constant sense of excitement that is bubbling up inside of everybody all the time, even when it seems as though nothing is going on, it's it's always there. It's always latent. Uh, you get you get three thousand people there bound together on one thing, and generally bound together by a set of abstractions, with a sense of being embattled, and that's very important. 
with a sense of being embattled and that there is an enemy. Now, in the case of the convention, the enemy, of course, is the other party. That there is an enemy, there is always that little, that little thin thing that can break out in any direction. And you walk into the convention hall and you feel it immediately. You just... This, this hum and all the machinery is humming, the air conditioners are humming, and you can hear the, the sound of the PA system echoing back and forth. And then, at night, when, when, the, when, the, when the speeches begin, when after, after all the, the preliminary work is done, and, and incidentally, the preliminary work is important to the building up of the dramatic impact of the real thing of the, of the meeting, the, the solidarity, the kind of religio, uh, socio, psycho involvement that everyone has in this thing. Uh, it builds up slowly, slowly, until finally there is a tiny man. Can I have that record again? I want to show just a piece of it. There is a tiny man standing on a, on a podium, and the lights are, are, are shining down on him, and everybody has slowly drawn toward this moment. It doesn't make any difference what he says. And this is the thing I would like to, one time I would like to see somebody write. Uh, oh, it doesn't matter, Don, any place. Sometime I would like to see somebody write a, a treatise, and undoubtedly there have been several written, I just haven't run into them, a treatise on what this phenomenon has meant to man's history. This phenomenon of the single man standing before a vast crowd. Uh, Hitler was a perfect example of it in our time. Almost, he, he almost completely solidified and brought together so many diverse elements uh, in man's nature, the, the, the exalting, of course, uh, the, the, the power to make a man feel that he was bigger. You know, man constantly feels that he's bigger than nature itself. This is what Hitler always told the Germans. Uh, in addition to that, there is also the sense of, of violence that's always, that's always there, to do violence. We, we all have it deep within ourselves, and, and even the most simple or plain of, of Staten Island-type people will we'll have, if given the proper provocation, will we'll rise to heights of violence that you never possibly would have thought w was inside of them. Under all the proper triggering, believe me, it's, it's there. And it's a fascinating thing to see in, in performance. I have seen, for example, evangelists speak total nonsense, complete and utter non-sequitorial nonsense for 40 minutes at a time, but their eyes burn. No one can quote them, you see, after they're through. I, I, I sat in a hall one time where, where there was an evangelist, a famous evangelist was speaking. And, uh, and, and he walked out on the stage. And incidentally, there's another thing that must be, must be impressed on you, and that is this, that all the great successful practitioners of this have always striven at all odds and always under all circumstances to be the plainest of men when they are out on the stage. When I say plain, I mean plain dress. You know, you, we like to think of guys with badges and swords. No. The really effective ones were almost Spartan in their simplicity. Hitler was always surrounded by guys who had big fancy hats and swords. Hitler's uniforms were, were, were drab almost to, to monast monasticity. He would walk out with nothing, just a, a, a dark gray uniform and a dark shirt, no badges, maybe a tiny, tiny symbol somewhere, and that's all. Uh, a very a, a, a brilliant showman, probably just uh, perhaps more instinctive than anything else. Uh, anyway, I remember this evangelist who always wears dark clothing, completely white shirt, dark, 
dark suit, dark tie. That's all. He walks out on the stage with brilliant lights on him. Brilliant, just absolutely brilliant. And the rest of the auditorium, and this is important too, is almost in total darkness. The people are dark, you see, because when, when you're in darkness, you can become part of a mass. If, if everyone is looking at everyone else, there is this little sense of, of uh, self-consciousness. You know, look at this little short, fat, idiotic-looking woman sitting here next to me. But no, when the lights are out, everybody is one, and everybody is handsome, and everyone is exalted. And so he walks out on the stage, you see. He looks down at the audience, and there's this long pause. And the pause gets... Kind of, kind of like a rubber band that's been stretched beyond its endurance. The pause rises, and he looks down with burning eyes upon the crowd, and then he starts out slowly. Sinners, you have come. Sinners, you have come. And it rises and rises and rises. And he speaks. If you if you listen to him carefully, if you ever if you've ever taken a dictaphone recording of what he says. The nonsense flows as self-contradictory. One phrase contradicts another, and it rises higher and higher and higher. But by the end of maybe 20 or 30 minutes, the crowd is to a tremendous frenzy of exaltation, and they are ready to march in any direction. And, and uh, the interesting thing about it is that nobody can ever quote this man. All they can say is, oh, he's dynamic. He's dynamic, and he's so sincere. Well, these, these are fascinating manifestations, you know. Uh, this thing, the desire to be led and to be exalted, and the desire to lead and to exalt are the, I think, the most interesting facets of man's whole personality. There's, there's no other animal that we know of that has this. And, and when, the moment, when the moment arises, now I'll give you the, the cue here, when the moment arises, when the lights, the lights are, are, are dimmed in the auditorium, and it's, let's say it's, it's, it's 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, and thousands of people have gathered in, and they're all pressed. In. And you know that, that one of the politics, in fact, I think it was Roosevelt, in the, in the early 30s, they, they even went so far as to turn the air conditioning off during one speech, they, to turn the air conditioning off, because the air conditioning, you see, that, that heat that was generated within each man excited him even more. Until finally the whole crowd was rising to a, to a frenzy. They were, they were ready to march. And if you've ever seen a great victory march after a man has been, after a man has been nominated, a victory march where suddenly everybody is out there, he doesn't know why. He's carrying his sign. Fifteen minutes ago, he said he was for somebody else. Twenty minutes ago, he said he was for somebody even before that. And now suddenly he's out there with his sign and he's marching. The speech rises and rises and rises until finally man's brain swirls in this great sense of exaltation. Listen to They can't control themselves now. There's no going back. You feel it rising, the heat the tension? I am at a loss for words. Can't you just see this guy standing down there with his coat collar open, his tie pulled down, sweat pouring off his face, great lights beaming down on him? The PA system is echoing and echoing. He pauses. As I stand before you on this historic occasion. How can they control themselves? 
nay indeed all of the Western world, awaits the decision we are about to make. He assures the mob that they're important. The mob is great. They're about to make a great decision. Listen to him. How can he control himself? Here is their I am chance. humble and proud. Humility is important. To call we are all smaller than the occasion. American, a friend of many He is now pointing to the Savior. A man whose name shall rank with the greatest presidents in the history of these United States of America. Great Scott. Ladies and gentlemen. They're, they're pouring into the aisles. They I haven't even heard the name yet. To place in nomination. I mean, aren't you ready to march? <laughs> oh, this is uh, to me one of the uh, one of the aspects of man's little nature that no one ever even talks about. Oh, they don't want to. They just don't want to mention it, you know. <laughs> and it's within every one of us. Believe me. Uh, don't think. Don't think that because you're an egghead, you won't march, Daddy. You will march quicker than anybody. Uh, it's it's a fascinating thing. I one time went when I was a kid. I was just a just a just a tiny urchin, and um, I had gotten a job. I had gotten a job in the steel mill, and one thing led to the other. And this was this was when the steel mills were having a tremendous battle with the labor forces and with with unionization and one thing and another. And it was just a great rising, hissing, steaming, boiling cauldron. And I was just you know I was about sixteen. And I, 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 it was in the summer, and I was working as an office boy. And the next thing I knew, they had me down at a union meeting, and and people kept jumping up and and shouting and pounding on on tables, and and uh, uh, other people kept pounding on the dais up in front with gavels. And the next thing that happened was that all of the men, all of the men, there must have been a thousand of them in this meeting hall. There were about four guys who were controlling the mob, and they kept jumping. They had there were patsies, of course, in the crowd who were. Who was shills, you might say, and and the man who was giving the speech would say, "And I stand before you tonight." And he would he would rise, and I, and I'm listening to this, and and I, I I recognized even in my primeval my primeval mind of the period, my early Neolithic mind, I recognized that 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 what this man was saying bore no relationship at all to what was going on, the the actual facts of the of the world that we lived in, worked in. But it didn't matter, you see. And he kept shouting. He kept shouting until finally the crowd marched right out of the hall, marched down the street. And the next thing I knew, people had torches. I don't know where torches came from. But fire, by the way, is very important to to a real, uh, to a really uh, a wild emotional catharsis. And Hitler knew this too. He always had torches raised. Uh, that if you've ever if you've ever seen a, a mob somewhere in the south. 
uh, you'll see the torch raised sometime. Next thing you know, there's a fire burning because fire is very primeval, boy. And so the next thing I knew, people got torches. They marched right to the right to the front gate of the mill, and they broke down. They broke down the gate, and they were they were destroying the clock house and all this, just marching and screaming and hollering. And the police arrived with hoses, and 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 everybody. It was sort of like the next morning, everybody woke up with a hangover. It's a wild thing. I, I never saw such a thing in my life. But it's there. Oh, it's there. Believe me, it's there. It's down. With them, because, and, and I think it's it's even more evident in our time. It's it's more there during our day than ever before. It isn't because man man has not progressed really as man. He has progressed as a machine maker, but he hasn't progressed really as man. Because you see, as he gets more, I feel because he gets more and more and more abstract with his life. There are fewer and fewer things which he can really believe in that he can become really transported by. And so he is willing to march almost on any provocation, Uh, even if he has to march against himself, if he has to uh, hold up a big sign that says, I hate myself, down with me. If somebody gets up and and, uh, gives them the right word and raises the the temperature in the room high enough, he will march. Believe me, he will march. uh, It's an interesting phenomenon. And, And I can say this, that as a person who has spoken before groups of people where there were <clears throat> maybe two or three thousand in the crowd, the bigger the crowd is, the, the larger the crowd gets, the more faceless it gets. I'm speaking to you as a, as a person who has, for example, uh, well, maybe some of you remember when out at Central Park, for example, uh, about three years ago, I did some humor things during, during uh, things that were going on out at Central Park. And at that time, there were upwards of five and 6,000 people gathered there. Uh, I've done Carnegie Hall things where there were as many as 4,000 people in the hall with nothing but this great, faceless, dark mass facing you. And it doesn't really face you. It's just out there. And the thing that's important to remember is that when you're, when you're addressing a large number of people, it is much easier to be in control than when you're addressing a small group of people. This is something that very few people seem to understand. They say, how can you get out before all those people? It's much easier to get out before all those people than before 10 or 12 people. And also, it is much easier to be in a crowd and to listen to someone in a great crowd than it is in a small group. And that's why all the great tyrants of the past have concentrated on huge crowds, not little crowds. They, they, they didn't stand on street corners and talk to 28 people. They talked... On, on balconies overlooking great squares where there would be massed maybe two million people. This is, as any speaker can tell you, this is a situation that is loaded. Wow, it's loaded. And uh, the, the sense, though, that have you ever asked yourself, what does the man who is doing it feel like? Have you re- ever really asked yourself, what does he feel like when he's standing out there in front of this massive, and he feels them reacting, you see? He says, he says a word, he says, and, and fellow Americans, and you feel that coming back to you. Have you, have you ever asked yourself what, what it feels like to be a man who has said this or who is in this situation? Well, I can tell you, having been in the situation several times, it is probably the most exciting feeling that a man can ever, that I have ever known. Exciting, it's a sense almost of godlike power that goes beyond your power. I mean, that, that ra- ra- raises you to a height of millions of feet tall. And it is this same sense, you see, modified, of course, because most actors don't 
have a personal involvement in the material that they're that they're espousing. They don't they don't really have the feeling of of saying something that is from within them. But nevertheless, they get up there and they are forty feet tall, and and everyone has the secret desire to be looked up to, the secret desire to be paid homage to, the secret desire to to be in power. And if you if you're uh, if you're in doubt about that, I would suggest that you. Uh, look up, uh, look in any one of our advertisements, almost any one of the big ads that you see for automobiles and for hats and for skid chains and for overshoes and for wash and wear suits, they all subtly say, they all subtly say, power. You will have power over the lesser dressed. You will have power over the lesser shod. You will have power over the, over, over the lesser, over the lesser riders in the lesser automobiles. And, and it just flows on out of us. It's a fascinating thing. As a matter of fact, uh, the uh, the great tendency of a one of the saddest things that happens when a man works before great crowds is because is this sense that when the great crowd is responding, that in the end you will do or say anything to make them respond. Uh, it is a, a kind of a mutual adoration thing, and I I know that. Well, I've heard many nightclub comics, for example, who sound as though they're saying things, and when they say things, when they, when they, when they contradict themselves or when they deal in half-truths, they, they often start out idealistic. They often start out with a real sense of uh, point and direction in what they have to say. But then, after maybe two or three years of, of working the trail, the, the crowd applauding and the crowd being part of him and being one of him becomes much more important than what you have to say. And as long as you can make people think you're saying something and they will respond to that, that is even even better. Uh, the, the, uh, the terrible sense of, of unity that you get is, is, uh, is something that has to be experienced, really. You know, uh, this, uh, this uh, I, I listen to conventions. I'm always fascinated by them. I, I wanted to go to the convention this year. I, uh, in fact, had kind of planned to go to the convention to make some reports back on radio uh, of the, the way, you know, the, real, the way it really feels there, the, 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 the tension and the sense in the air, rather than talk about the specific candidates. To walk into somebody's, uh, to walk into somebody's caucus room or to walk into, into uh, someone's campaign room and come back and tell you how it feels in Lyndon Johnson's room uh, where his headquarters are. How does it feel in Kennedy's room? Uh, how does it feel in Nixon's room? You know, all the people there. What what are the what are the the little inner inner s- uh, sensations and tensions that you feel? You, you really get some interesting things going in this world of of mass man, and it uh, it's it's a thing which we all desire. There's no question about it. We all desire somehow to be in a vast mob. We, we have this terrible split right down the middle of us. The split that on the one side says, I am an individual. Why, George, I'm an individual. And on the other side, mankind, mankind, my, love mankind. Well, uh, in a sense, the two are really diametrically opposed. And you'll keep shifting back and forth between the two of them. When you feel that mankind has walked away from you, then you become very much uh, the individual. When you feel that you are are able to, in some way or another, draw mankind to you, then you become a non-individual, you see. It depends on which side of the 
of the particular coin you happen to be working on at the moment. Uh, I, I've seen I've seen this this constant contradiction arise when people are gathered in sales meetings, for example, who work in mass media. Uh, I, I'll see a guy say, uh, "Well, of course, uh, uh, I mean, uh, I believe in individual initiative. I, I think of all of us here, we believe in ideas." And then in the next phrase, he will say, "Well, I mean, uh, wh- what about what about the mass out there? What about the mass?" In in a sense that he has negated exactly what he has said prior to that moment. Uh, speaking of the speaking of the negation, you are tuned to seven ten on your dial. This is W O R Radio, your station for news. What do you hear in the best of circles? Settle Schaefer, your cue to quality. This is WOR, AM and FM, New York. Owned and operated by RKO General. Next best thing to being a delegate. Here at the Democratic National Convention starting Monday, July 11th on WOR Radio. Your number one station for convention coverage. Your data set for news. At the WOR time tone, the time will be exactly 1 p.m. James McCarthy reporting. For up-to-the-minute reports, keep tuned to this station. Now the news. Well, America, when did you last look in the mirror? Perhaps you'd better do it now because the color, which has never been associated with this nation, is beginning to show through. The color of a canary. Today we've been attacked by Castro, Khrushchev, and intimidated by two leaders of the Mexican government. Khrushchev said Soviet rockets would face America if we intervened in Cuba. Two Mexican leaders said that Mexico would sell oil to Castro and would back Cuba against the United States. And the bearded one himself announced that he is going to put on a worldwide propaganda campaign to put automatic rifles in the hands of thousands of Cubans to combat United States aggression. From some officials here in the nation's capital, the harshest words were that Khrushchev has virtually declared Cuba to be a Soviet satellite, but of course, the usual don't quote me was issued immediately after the statements. From the vacation White House in Providence, Rhode Island, the only statement that was issued was from a boat in the water where I said, you should have seen the one that got away. More news in a moment. Reach for your partner, swing to the right when the music stops, give her a light. In today's L and M, fine tobaccos can be blended. Blended, blended, blended. Not to suit a filter, but to suit your taste. 
So through the miracle tip, pure white inside, pure white outside, you get taste, more taste, more taste by far. L&M has found the secret that unlocks the flavor. In a filter cigarette. Reach for flavor. Reach for L&M. The clown prince of Latin American politics held a very unusual television speech last night in Havana. Castro didn't scream once. Robert Perez reports from Havana. Soviet Premier Khrushchev announcement that Russia will come to the military aid of Cuba in the event of a United States attack has been greeted here as another victory for Prime Minister Fidel Castro and his revolutionary regime. The announcement reached Havana moments after the Premier bombarded the United States with insults in a speech clearly designed for consumption by Latin Americans outside of Cuba. Also this morning, crowds gathered outside the Mexican embassy in overwhelming approval of statements made by Mexico's Chamber of Deputies that that country would support Cuba in its conflict with the United States. This is Robert Perez in Havana, and now back to James McCarthy in Washington. From Los Angeles, the Democrats are starting to get down to definite business today, but there's also a light side. William Evenson reports from Democratic National Headquarters in Los Angeles. This is the town of convention excitement. The banners and the streamers announcing the fact that the favorite son of some group is here. Delegates and the general public know that the top runners for the nation's highest office fall into one category. In any hotel, they have either been here, are here, or will soon arrive. And here in L.A., one of the biggest boo-boos, 2,800 banners proudly announced in big, bold letters, Welcome Democrates, C-R-A-T-E-S. It's believed the sign company is run by a Republican. Other top political news, 55,000 hot dogs to be eaten, 120,000 soft drinks will be sold. W.O.R. A.M. and F.M. New York, owned and operated by RKO General. Now back to Gene Shepard. Rhythm, rhythm, rhythm. Catch this swinging guitar. Yes, friends. It's the nervous 60s. Oh boy, can I have about 10 seconds of that, Jim? Is, is, is this an anthem of our time? The nervous jumping sixties. The, the age of... <laughs> oh, boy. 
Don't you feel it, that tension in the air? It's all around us. It's the 1960s, the soaring, soaring 60s, rising higher and higher and higher and higher, higher into the sun, into the veritable orb itself, into the sun. Did I ever... Hey, listen. You know, I met a girl the other night. I'm telling you, there is madness. There is not only madness afoot. There are great, heavy, neolithic demons still lurking in the dark foliage of the mind of man. I'm sitting in a party the other night, and I find myself talking to a chick who believes, really does, she looks looks right, right into my face, right directly into my baby blue eyes, and tells me with a straight face that, that she is a sun worshiper and believes that the sun is God, and that every day this God rises in the east and arches across the whole world, the firmament that we know, and a fiery chariot, a chariot, rising and around and around. I says, well, well yeah, that's, that's, she says, that's, that's why I have such a suntan. So I, I, yes, and, and she says, every, every day I go out on my roof and I, I have a little mass. I lie out there and the sun beams right down on me. And I said, well, are you kidding? And she says, no, I am not. She really, literally, actually is. She really does think and feel that the, that the God is sun and the sun is the God. So I said, well, yes. And, and I listened to this and I said, well, yes, I don't, I don't, uh, I, you know, I mean, I have people's religion and I don't say much. I, I listen. And then, then she proceeds to tell me that she suspects that, that Hitler and Roosevelt are still alive together and they're living in Russia. In Stalin's Russia, she said. Well, I said, well, Stalin is dead, too. She said, oh, no. Oh, no. Well, she says, do you have any, do you, do you, do, have you ever, did you see Hitler dead? Did you see Roosevelt? Did you see Stalin? No. Well, then how do you know? Are you the kind that believes in everything you hear? I said, well, no, not exactly. And I'm sitting there with a, with a, with a, with a bottle of beer in one hand, you know, trying to hang on to this Danish this Danish chaise lounge with the other because the ground was sort of rocking under me, see, back and forth. And, and she's seriously talking, and she's the angry kind of girl, you know, with the black-rimmed glasses, you know, and, and kind of upswept, and she has this fiery glint in the eye, a fiery glint. And I said, uh, <clears throat> well, uh, yeah, this is true. I, 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 uh, you, you, you really have a point there. I, I, I'm not quite sure. She says, well, uh, let me tell you. And she, she goes on, she, she proceeds to tell me that all the things, all the things that matter, she says, here, here's a typical phrase, uh, you don't think for a minute that the scientists aren't covering up. I said, well, we'll cover, she says, covering up, you know what they're covering up. Don't think for a minute that, that, that they haven't created life already in the laboratories that they have created other men in the laboratories. And as, a, and as a matter of fact, I happen to know a man who works in a laboratory, and he tells me that there are seven people living in New York City who were created entirely in a laboratory. Don't tell me they're not covering up. Boy, you certainly are a simpleton, swallowing all that stuff. And you know, by George, I felt like a simpleton. I saw, I, I, she says, well, no, 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 look, for example... And then it, it sort of trailed off in little dots. And, and I, was, I, I was powerless to compete with this. I recognized, of course, that I really was and am a simpleton. Of course, as you know, that is one of the great, one of the great fallacies of the 
of the deep non-scientific thinker that the scientists or the Air Force or somebody is covering up. And you can always get a rise in people. I I'm going to get a rise in you. Listen. Hey, listen. Listener out there, listen. Come on over here for a minute. Listen. Listen. Who's covering up? I mean, who's covering up? You don't think for a minute you're getting the full story, do you? When you read it. <laughs> the Times, of course not. <laughs> you know who's covering up. I know. We both know who's covering up. And who do you think is going to get it in the end? Yes, that's right. You and me, the little guys. Right. Right in the end. Look at my end. It's all swollen and bumpy. It's got great big footmarks all over it. Yes. Would you please give me... Uh, I'd like to... Just, just one person. Give me... Uh, by the way, this is the quickest way to get people on your side. You're covering up. They're covering up. And I'll tell you... Uh, there's so many things that are, that are covered up. It's so hot, we can't even say it on the radio. So hot. Can't say it on the radio. Can't even print it. It's so hot. Ooh. Ooh. Wow, it's hot. Ooh. Terrible hot stuff. I mean, it's the big cover-up. Who do you think runs all of it? <laughs> you don't think I could say, do you? <laughs> you know, the interesting thing about it is that I can, I can just see that a lot of people out there, some guy, can you see some guy just tuning in his radio, suddenly hears this, who do you think is covering up? And there's this, suddenly there's a little spine rises inside. He says, yeah, yeah, I know. I know. Yes, and here's a guy who's going to say it at last. Okay, okay. You see, everybody... <laughs> Please, I want to talk to one guy. Give it, one, one honest, simple soul out there who really believes they're covering up. Come on, come on. I want to talk to you. I want to, want to hear... Uh, I want to hear... I want, I'm just, just want to hear... They're covering up. And then, then, of course, I will feel vindicated because I have suspected that they're covering up. Who's covering up? Well, you know, you know very well who's covering up. Can't say it on the air, of course. Can't even print it, of course. Not in this day and age. Huh. Boy, this isn't the age of man anymore when you can say what you felt. <laughs> covering up. Why, they kill me in a second. Why, they'd have me off the air in 30 seconds. So, off the air. Uh, plain sealed wrapper. Information will be sent to you. <laughs> it's beautiful. Isn't it interesting? Here, 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 here comes a guy who, who believes that they're covering up. Uh... You know, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at, I'm standing there in front of a magazine counter today, yesterday, day before, something like that. Isn't that a fantastic, hasn't the weather been fantastic? I, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm literally an ice cream cone melting in the sun. And there are a few things more festive and at the same time sadder than that. I am a rainbow ice cream cone yet. I mean, they, yes, that's right, 28 flavors. That's me. Have you ever had the feeling that, that one day, of course, it, it is impossible. You know, I remember those big signs. Did I ever tell you about the friend of mine who traveled from coast to coast, Jim? Coast to coast. Stopped at every Howard Johnson from Maine all the way down to Mexico City. Everywhere. And by the way, now it's the Mexicans. Everywhere you turn, there's a gigantic sign that says, Yankee, go home. And, 
Now it's the... But, but this friend of mine traveled from coast to coast. He stopped off at every Howard Johnson, and he began to perceive that there wasn't a single Howard Johnson anywhere that had all 28 flavors. It was another one of those utopian dreams. It was a dream of utopia, of paradise. And every place he would go, they would say, oh, coconut rum? Oh, we, we were out of that. We don't have that. Only the ones that have the stars next to them do we have. He said, but, but, but does, somebody have, does somebody have peppermint grape? You have peppermint grape up there. Well, we, we have it occasionally. Gosh. And he traveled across the country trying to, trying to buy a big scoop of peppermint grape or coconut rum or almond tutti-frutti. And everywhere he went, he found that the 28-flavor concept was a utopian dream. Get it out of your skull. It is not going to happen. And so I said, what, what happened to that? Did, did, did somebody feel that there were no cover-uppers? No, that's right. Covering up. Don't you think that I don't know that you're covering up? A utopian dream. I sit here, a, a, a rainbow cone melting in the in the beautiful summer sun of 1960 America. Oh, I'm alive. A cake of yeast. I remember my mother one time. I'm this kid, see. I don't know whether this expression was ever used in, in the eastern seaboard region. I don't know. I have no idea. And I'm, I'm, I'm in the kitchen. And I'm knocking down a salami sandwich. At that time, I was hooked on salami sandwiches with strawberry preserves. Have you ever mixed kosher salami with strawberry preserve? Oh, it's it's really... Now, don't laugh. No, there's a, there's a it's the yin and yang principle again. Now, don't look at me like that. It is the yin and yang. The slight... Uh, another thing that you, you'll find is very good is to take a big dill pickle. It's the same principle. Take a big dill pickle. Do you know the kind that floats in barrels? Get one of these big delicatessen dill pickles, the real dill pickle. And then get a hold of, down at the dime store, get a hold of a, of a stick of peppermint candy, you know, the striped kind? Cut a hole in the end of the pickle, just like you're cutting the end off a cigar, and, and slowly bore down into the center of the pickle, bore the peppermint stick. I, has anybody else ever tasted this? This is a, this is a strange Midwestern phenomenon. I'm going to tell you exactly what you do. You take a pickle, cut the end off of it, and then bore down into it a peppermint stick. You know, the kind that has little holes in it? You know, the peppermint stick that's kind of hollow? You know, the little holes? There's, there's a kind of a kind of little hollow things running through it. You know how peppermint is. You can, you can suck it like that. So you, you stick this thing all the way down into it like a straw, and then you, you, you draw the pickle juice up through the peppermint stick. Yes, really. I'm telling you, this is... I, I, I did not invent this. This is an old ancient tradition. Am, am I the only one who has ever tasted this? I'll tell you another thing you do. You take a watermelon, see, and you, you cut a square out of a watermelon. This is, this is a real Indiana trick. You take one of the, a big green watermelon, not the striped, but the big green kind, the long green one, the gourd watermelon, the big fella, and, and you make sure that it's ripe, see, and you cut a, a, a plug out of it, and you remove... You remove the plug. Just pull it right out, you see. And then you turn the watermelon over, upside down, and you pour out just uh, a the little water that gathers, you know, the juice, that you, you pour it out. And then you turn the watermelon back over again, see. And then you take, you take a bottle of, well, what they generally used out there was, uh, well, <clears throat> gin. 
uh, you take a bottle of this, you pour it right into the into the into the into the watermelon. Just pour it right down into it, you see, and it'll go in. Actually, you just pour the whole thing in. They they use sometimes they used a use a big almost a fifth. You just pour it right in, and then put the plug back in. See, just stick the plug back in and set it out in the sun, and leave it out there for one solid day. The old sun beating down. See. Then you take the watermelon. Now it's even gotten riper. Ooh, in many ways. Then you take you take this watermelon and then you put it in a great big tub of ice. And you just plunk it down, all crushed ice, all around it, and and you just stick it down in the crushed ice and you let it sit in there for about a, another half a day until it's ice cold, just absolutely ice cold. And then you make as ma if you have say nine people there, you 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 get a little uh, a knife and you cut nine plug holes in this thing and put straws in each one and you're in business. Oh, boy. Uh, speaking of business, this is WOR AM and FM, New York. The biggest watermelon dealer on the East Coast. We'll be here until 1 o'clock. And uh, speaking of business... Sunoco, Sunoco, 200X gives you premium ingredients at regular price. 200X gives you premium ingredients at regular price. 200X gives you premium ingredients at regular price. Sunoco, Sunoco. New Sunoco blend 200X, a new gasoline, gives you the ingredients of a high-priced premium, yet you pay only regular price. Many cars get extra power. Up to 13% more power after just two tankfuls. 200X gives you premium ingredients at regular price. New Sunoco 200X gives extra mileage. Up to 19 more miles per tankful. 200X gives you premium ingredients at regular price. New Sunoco 200X gives you extra engine protection. Can mean longer life for your car. Yes, new Sunoco blend 200X gives you extra power, extra mileage, extra engine protection. 200X gives you premium ingredients. It's a regular price. Sun, no, no, sun, no, no. 200X. Exceptional. You're tuned to 710 on your radio dial. Next best thing to being a delegate, hear the Democratic National Convention starting Monday, the 11th of July on WOR Radio, your number one station for convention coverage. That's WOR AM and FM in New York. Now back once again to Gene Shepard. I'm your delegate to the vast convention of humanity. And I'll cast my one-half vote any way you decide that I'm to cast it. <laughs> and so here we sit. Oh, speaking of uh, convention coverage, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to describe. I, I don't know whether or not... Has anyone ever tasted that pickle thing, or is this another creation of my... My, my poor old, I think as you grow older, now this is just what I think, and when I say older, I mean when you get to be nine. When you're nine years old, you have, you have a, a fantasy thing in the background which you consider your memory. And this is what you say it was like when you were six or three or two. Uh, it, it, when, you, when I use the term old, I am merely saying, and when you, when you slowly traverse along that vast horizontal line, that curved, plain horizontal line of time, that great time-space curve, that jot, and as you, as you move along it, more and more that, that hazy, shifting foliage in the background that you are leaving, that jungle that you have traversed, uh, becomes more and more of a fairyland and less and less real. Now, has anyone ever tasted that pickle thing, or did I create this? totally out of my own imagination. 
totally, completely, thoroughly, totally. Just, just like I remember again, you know, I'm sitting, I'm sitting in my swivel chair the other day, and the phone rings and people talk, and I hear the sound of a mimeograph machine, and I'm writing a piece for a, a magazine or something, and I'm all involved, and suddenly, like a bell, in my ear, I, I heard the faint echoes of something which I think I'm the only one. I, I, I'm, was there ever any radio program that you ever heard of called the Tale, Tales of the Alhambra? Did you ever hear of anything like this? Tales of the Alhambra? Campo. It was a very mysterious, enigmatic East program, that kind of thing, you know, with big gong, and the announcer would come from the mysterious East. Many, many centuries ago, it was writ in the fingers of time as they moved across the great sands of eternity, the tales of the Alhambra, this sort of thing. And, and, and I, I just suddenly occurred to me, and it disappeared then, and the sound of the mimeograph machines took over again. And so, <laughs> says, no, 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 Shepard, stop it. No, there was never any such thing. Get out of here. No pickles with, cut it out. And I walked away, and it was much better. Ten minutes later, I went back to the water cooler and talked to a salesman, and I was back in reality. Speaking of, uh, of uh, the salesman, the other day I got a copy of Life magazine. This is not a commercial for Life, by the way. I got a copy of Life magazine, and there was there is an article on sharks. I'm fascinated by sharks. Uh, I, I used to see sharks in, in a lot of different... and it, I was fascinated by them. They're strange, beautiful, primeval, ancient, mysterious creatures. We don't really know a great deal about sharks, you know. And there was an article on sharks, and so I had to buy this. I saw it says on the cover, Sharks. So I bought the, the, the article just for that. I just, just wanted to see this shark thing. So I opened it up to the shark, and what do you think, Jim? Right in the middle of this of this essay on sharks, there is a double-page spread, a double-page in-color spread picture of a W.O.R. Monday afternoon sales meeting. In